Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Welcome to Murder Mile. Today, I'm standing outside of the Royal Automobile Club at 89 Pall Mall, SW1. Two streets east of the death of David West by his son. Two streets northeast of Godretala Barani, banging on the gates of Buckingham Palace. Two streets south of the Blackout Ripper's assault on Greta Hayward. And three streets east of the sweet-faced killer who famously sold powdered dessert. Coming soon to Murder Mile. Hailed as one of London's best private members clubs, the RAC Club is an impressive four-story mansion made out of Portland stone and lined with Doric columns, like a lost relic of the Roman Empire. Founded in 1897, it houses 80 luxury bedrooms, seven banquet suites, three restaurants, a marble-lined swimming pool, a billiards room, and a Turkish bath. With all the opulence of a billionaire's boudoir, mere hoi polloi, like you or I, would never be allowed to dirty its decor, as its membership is strict and vapid. To enter... You have to be wealthy, you have to be a name, and until 1998, you had to be a man. To pamper these flexible legends of tax law limbo and lovers of the offshore loophole, the RAC club employs 200 staff, comprising of chefs, butlers, sommeliers, valets and chambermaids. Most commute in, but a tiny proportion live on site, in small private rooms, on a section exclusively for staff. In the summer of 1972, room 519 was home to Sarah Gibson, the club's live-in assistant housekeeper. Fresh from the country, she was excited to undertake such a prestigious job. She worked hard, she kept out of trouble, and she was well-liked by friends, family, club members and colleagues. But across the night of Sunday the 2nd to Monday the 3rd of July 1972, not only would a sadist assail this veritable Fort Knox of security 
and navigate its maze of corridors to access her room. But they would subject this young sweet girl to a truly shocking attack over four torturous hours, which ended in her death. But why Sarah? Was it personal? Revenge? A mistake? Or a series of unfortunate coincidences? My name is Michael, I am your tour guide, and this is Murder Mile. Episode 159, Do Not Disturb, Part 1. Sarah Mary Gindle Gibson was born in August 1950 as the youngest daughter to John and Mary Gibson, with three older siblings, Angela, Martin and Simon. As someone who worked as an assistant housekeeper, you might expect such a girl to have a more modest upbringing. But you'd be wrong. Raised in the village of Lambourne in Berkshire, the Lambourne Valley is a breeding ground for some of the world's fastest and finest racehorses and Grand National winners. And at the centre of it all was Sarah's father, the celebrated horse race trainer, Colonel Jack Huggill Gibson. Like many breeders in this village, which comprised of 50 training yards, horse racing is very much a family business with their surname being the epitome of pride, and their secrets passed down solely through the bloodline. Therefore, it's no surprise that Jack's eldest son became a championship jockey. And so dedicated were this family to achieve equine excellence, that Jack was the first trainer to build a swimming pool in his yard, exclusively to aid the rehabilitation of injured horses. But it wasn't for Sarah. Being a diminutive five foot two and weighing just over eight stone, physically, Sarah was the perfect size to become a jockey. But horse racing didn't rev her engine. There was something truly humble about Sarah. As she didn't crave fame, she didn't court attention and she didn't compete for trophies. She subbed tea instead of champagne, and whereas some would cover their photo on the society pages, she saw her future with a pinny, a mop, a clean room, and a strong sense of pride at a job well done. She would never become a name with a bulging bank account, but that was the point. She wanted to do her own thing, to learn everything from the ground up, and to make her own mistakes. With her parents' blessing, in 1967 she studied hotel management at college. And in October 1969, she got her first job as a chambermaid at the Norfolk Hotel in Paddington. Where she made beds, she cleaned bathrooms, and she scrubbed the floors. All for a minimum wage but she earned every penny. It was the perfect job for someone like Sarah, 
as she was a private person who kept to herself. Described as a quiet little thing with a pretty face and lovely big blue eyes, she was popular and liked. But being happy in her own skin, she was good with people, but she preferred the solitude of her own company. She wasn't shy, but she was just a private person who never felt the need to burden others with her woes. She was chatty and happy-go-lucky, but she rarely discussed her love life, and although she didn't have a lot of friends, she loved her family and she would visit them every month without fail. She loved her job, she never complained, she was always punctual, and living on a minuscule wage, she got by because she had simple tastes, purchasing white bread, instant coffee and powdered milk. There was nothing fancy about Sarah. She liked a simple life with no fuss, frills or friction. In November 1970, Sarah took a step up the career ladder when she was employed as the assistant housekeeper at the prestigious RAC club in Pall Mall. Built on a solid reputation as a hard worker, she would be responsible for a team of chambermaids working day and night shifts. Owing to the long hours, she lived on site in a small but practical room, and she liked her job as the staff were like family. Three years out of college, she had a blossoming career, and she had done it all off her own back. Everything in her life was going well. But one year later, she would be murdered in the one place she felt safest, her own bed. But why? Was it for something she did, something she said, something she heard, or something she knew? Sarah had lived in London for 18 months. As a notoriously expensive city, she may have feared for her safety had she been forced to share a bedsit or flat with several dubious strangers in the cheapest part of the town. But luckily, the staff quarters at the RAC club were perfect for a young small girl. Being a prestigious venue, which prided itself on protecting its exclusive clientele, its windows were locked, its doors were solid, undesirables were instantly ousted, and security patrolled the premises at all hours. Being an all-male club, although the rules were archaic, every member had to follow a strict code of conduct. Breaches were dealt with by cancellation of their membership, and police were involved if necessary. The same went for the staff as strict house rules enforced a level of professionalism. No drinking on duty, no drugs at any time, no fraternisation between staff and customers, and no friends, especially those of a romantic bent, were permitted in their private quarters. This also assured the staff's safety. 
on the night of her murder. Of the 80 bedrooms for club patrons, only 17 were occupied. All were members, all were accredited and vetted, and all were questioned by detectives and released. Of the 12 living staff, 10 were on duty, one was absent but accounted for, and the 12th was Sarah. But then again, how safe is anyone at any time? As for her work relationships, she didn't have a colleague who she was close to. She was friendly, but she never got close. As Frederick Hockley, the valet, would state, she was always nice, always pleasant. She would laugh with me when a horse race was on that she ought to put a bet on. I don't know anybody who had a bad word about her. Overseeing the chambermaids, she reported to Monica White, the housekeeper, who said, she was a lovely little girl without any real friends. At Christmas, she brought herself a television set so she could watch it in the evenings for a bit of entertainment. Following her death, detectives occupied two rooms to question the staff. But the harshest words anyone had to say about Sarah was that she was a little bit immature and had a tiny rebellious streak. As a few days earlier, one of the chambermaids saw that with her black uniform, she was wearing white stockings. At which Sarah laughed. They will have to do me. It's the only pair I have until payday. She was far from a figure of hate. But did someone she knew harbor a grudge? Little is known about her private life, but certain things were undeniable. Everyone agreed. She was cautious. She never took risks. And she didn't mix with hippies or weirdos. Anyone like that. She didn't have a criminal record. Her autopsy stated there was no drink or drugs in her system. And she was not pregnant or sick. In fact, her life was so blameless she didn't even return a library book late. Some suggested that perhaps she had a secret life. But then again, that's entirely unlikely as she rarely went out, often being at her most contented when she was alone in her room watching television. As for romance, I never saw her with a boyfriend Frederick said. A statement backed up by Monica. Sarah didn't talk about her love life. She kept this to herself. Now this could just be gossip, but some had said she was seeing a man called Frank who came from Belfast. But if he did exist, there's no mystery as to why she kept him a secret. As being so private... Her silence was just part of who she was. In the ensuing investigation, police would explore every minuscule aspect of her private life for a clue, or even just a hint 
at who had inflicted such violence against Sarah and why. But it all drew a blank. Her diary, although well-thumbed, was little more than a to-do list and a list of names that the police would contact, question and rule out. There were no coded entries, nor hints of liaisons. Her social life was as ordinary as any young girl who savoured the silence of her own space. She didn't splash out on extravagances and saved what little she could. She liked simple pleasures like instant coffee and crab telly. She smoked ten ciggies a day, lighting up her embassies with a gold-coloured Ronson lighter with a tortoiseshell casing. And she always took a good book to bed. And the highlight of her year was to be a solo weekend break in Paris. Her treat to herself. But first, she had to save. She loved going to the theatre, often alone, having recently seen Godspell and Tom Brown's school days, as well as popping to the cinema. And although the latest releases, Dirty Harry, A Clockwork Orange, and Alfred Hitchcock's Frenzy weren't her cup of tea, she had some interest in the trial of the teacup poisoner, whose crimes were hitting the headlines. To keep herself entertained, sometimes she went dancing, sometimes she played bingo, and her only hobby was to collect porcelain dolls. Mentally, she was strong. Physically, she was well. She had no illnesses nor disabilities. And because she kept her life as simple as possible, she slept well, she ate well, she was happy, and she had few worries. In fact, the only concern was that, ever since she was a child, she had suffered with claustrophobia. A colleague would state, she always slept, she always slept with her door open. She couldn't bear to be enclosed in such a small room. It would have been easy for someone to get into her bedroom as she slept. We sometimes remarked on this, but she only laughed. In her final days, she received no threats, she saw no strangers, and there was no change in her mood. So either her killer had come out of nowhere and attacked her for no reason whatsoever, or maybe she kept all of this terror to herself. Sunday the 2nd of July was Sarah's day off. She had worked the 7am to 1pm shift the day before and spoke to Monica at 12.55pm. But she said nothing about her plans for the weekend, which wasn't unusual. The weather was hot, as Britain was in the grip of a mini heatwave, the kind of which we love for a second but then grumble about when it's too hot and once it's gone. With highs of 83 Fahrenheit, 28.6 Celsius during the day, and lows of 68 and 20 at night, it was made hotter in a city made of glass, concrete and steel. 
as per usual for a day off. She woke late, she ate toast, she drank coffee, and dressed in casual clothes. There was no urgency to her movements and no schedule to keep, as she was enjoying having nothing to do. Mid-morning, she left her fifth-floor room at the rear of the club, leaving her door slightly ajar, as there was no reason to lock it. She removed the Do Not Disturb sign from the handle on the outside of her bedroom door and returned it to the inside as tomorrow morning she would be back on duty. She turned left down the hallway, descended the surface stairs, and exited the club via the staff-only door. Being a balmy day, she did as anyone else would do and went on a long walk. As although chock-full of traffic, Pall Mall is surrounded by several royal parks, such as Green Park, Hyde Park and St. James's. She took herself shopping, purchasing just her essentials, being that of a copy of the Evening Standard and a pack of 20 embassy cigarettes, leaving enough money for a simple but harmless night out. Throughout the day, she was seen several times in the club and she seemed her usual pleasant self. At 7pm, she dined in the staff restaurant, eating a simple meal of stew and dumplings. At 7.30pm, she walked two streets north to her regular haunt, the Fun City Bingo Hall at 3-4 Coventry Street. As she often did, she sat by herself. She purchased two scorecards and a soft drink leaving her with approximately 60 pence in her purse. She chatted politely with the other ladies, and she left at a little before 9.30pm. As far as we know, she didn't meet anyone, she wasn't followed, she wasn't accosted, and she didn't look harassed. The RAC club barman served her a drink, and at 9.45pm, she returned to her room. That was the last time that Sarah Gibson was seen alive. What happened next? The detectives could only surmise based on the evidence presented before them. And although the little things she did and the seemingly ordinary actions she undertook that night were part of her nighttime routine, they would have a massive impact on the few hours she had left to live. She entered the long, thin, windowless hallway, which consisted of five staff quarters, rooms 516 to 520, with a small shared bathroom, a lavatory, and one entrance and exit to the staff-only staircase. Above her door, to room 519, was a solitary bulb, which was always kept on throughout the night. At 15 feet square, her room was small, practical, but not particularly tidy. 
near the door was a dressing table with a large mirror topped with ceramic dolls, a tall wardrobe full of Sarah's clothes, a solo chair and a small side table featuring a flower in a small thin vase, an electric heater, which was off, a sash window, which was closed, a set of floral curtains left half open, a small black and white television, a hand basin, a second wardrobe full of her toiletries, books and underwear, a bedside table with a lone lamp and a framed photograph of her family, and behind the door, an armchair and a single bed. That was her room, where she lived by herself. Returning at a little after 9.45pm, she popped on her telly. And if she had tuned it to BBC One, she'd have watched the World War II drama Colditz, the episode where Wing Commander Marsh feigns illness. She undressed and placed her clothes on the chair. She checked her uniform for the morning, a black skirt, a black top and white stockings, as payday was soon but not soon enough. And she changed into her night attire, of white knickers, a blue bed jacket and an orange nylon nightdress. Nothing fancy. On the dressing table was hung a blue bathrobe tied with a long blue woolen cord. But she would only wear that when nature called, and she had to pop down the hallway to use the bathroom or the lavatory. At 10.15pm, Colditz made way for Monty Python's Flying Circus. And while smoking and stubbing out one of six cigarettes in two ashtrays that night, she put two curlers into the sides of her dark brown hair. Perching her handbag, containing a purse, a diary, a torch, and a Churchill crown on the chair, she removed her valuables, which were more sentimental than expensive. A silver watch, a heart-shaped locket, which her dad had brought her for her 21st birthday, around which hung four charms to remind her of her mum and three siblings. But she kept in her gold earrings, as being pierced, they were unlikely to fall out. At 10.45pm, Monty Python became midweek, a current affairs show presented by Ludovic Kennedy. She boiled a tartan flask of water, made one cup of gold blend coffee. She stirred in one teaspoon's worth full of coffee mate, a powdered milk substitute, and she supped her nightly drink from a single ceramic cup. She grabbed the newspaper, she popped off her slippers, and she hopped into her single-sized bed. At 11.30pm was the late news, followed by a nature program called Animal Designs, which she may have watched, having snuggled under a brown floral eiderdown and a multicolored woolen blanket of red, black, orange and cream squares. As her sleepy head nestled softly, into a thick white pillow. We can never know the exact timings of what she did and when during her last night alive. But we do know that all of these everyday things 
she did between 9.45pm and midnight. By the time of the nightly weather report, Sarah was asleep. And as the channel closed down for the night, and the national anthem played, the soft soothing voice of the announcer stated, the BBC is now closing. As she often did, she fell asleep with the lights and TV on, her curtains slightly open, and her door left ajar. At 8am, her alarm clock went off, but she didn't answer it. Sarah was supposed to be doing a split shift with Monica, starting at 9am. She had always been such a punctual girl, quiet but efficient. So by 9.20am, Monica asked the valet, Fred, go wake her, will you? Fred Oakley went up to the fifth floor. I knocked on the door of Sarah's room. I got no reply. Ignoring the do not disturb sign, which hung on the outside handle. As he entered, her room was illuminated as she had left it the night before. Her TV was on, her curtains were open, a half-drunk cup of coffee lay beside her bed, and her clothes scattered the floor. It was messy, but then this was her room. The door was off the latch. I said, Sarah, get up, it's gone nine o'clock. She didn't stir, she didn't move, and she didn't make a sound. From the base of the bed, he knocked the wooden footboard and cooed, Sarah, come on, you're late. But seeing that her skin looked an odd color, I thought maybe she was ill. With her blanket pulled right up to her nose, she looked asleep, only with her half-open eyes peeping over the top of the bedsheet, all bloodshot and fixed. He saw that her face was strangely swollen. Gravely worried, Fred called Monica, who also got no answer to her call. And as she slowly pulled down the blanket to reveal the rest of her face... Instantly, I knew that she was dead. No one had seen Sarah for 12 hours, and she had been dead for at least five. But it was those crucial four hours between midnight and the time of her death which posed the most questions. Who had done this to Sarah? Did she sneak in her lover? Was it a rival who was waiting for her? Or was it a familiar face who knew that she never locked her door and always left it open? On the surface, there were no signs of a break-in, no hint of a struggle, and the room looked messy 
but not ransacked. It was only when her blanket was pulled down to her ankles that the true horror of what had happened to Sarah was unearthed. Someone had wanted her punished. Someone wanted her humiliated. And they had taken a long lingering pleasure in her terrifying torture. As this tiny girl had been stripped, tied up, raped and strangled. Over the four hours she was trapped in a room with her killer. But who would want her dead and why? Her quiet little life had left more holes than clues. Was this a revenge attack over a deal to do with her wealthy father's business? Was it a rival staff member who wanted her job? Did she have a secret boyfriend who had been jilted? Or was a nobody in an exclusive club full of rich and powerful men? Did she accidentally see or hear something that she shouldn't have? The room was a mess, and although several inexpensive items had been stolen, her killer had left behind two items of their own. A brown corduroy jumper and a white shirt with two buttons missing. But was this a mistake? Or if it wasn't, how come her killer had the foresight to cover up her body with a blanket before they fled? and giving themselves enough time to escape by placing on the outside door handle a simple sign which everybody in a hotel obeys. It simply read, Do not disturb. Part 2 continues next week. Plushcare.com/weightloss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now save fifty percent on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
And that's it. End of part one. Folks, this is Extra Mile. Uh, I, changes to the way that Murder Mile is done. We, I've speeded up the start. Uh, so we get to the story quick, quicker. I've got rid of the end bit. So we just go straight into Extra Mile. Now there's no outro, which is great. So if you're new to Extra Mile, this is the unscripted, unedited bit. It's not essential. You can switch off now if you want to. Um, just to say... Um, there's going to be a lot of information in this episode, uh, a lot of really exciting exclusive content that will only be shared on Patreon. So if you want to become a Patreon subscriber, for, it's t- literally £2 a month. and You get lots of really exclusive stuff, like stuff you won't see anywhere else, especially with this case. And because I've been in the archives for ages, I've got some really amazing stuff to show you. So uh, if you want to join Patreon, please do. There's a link in the show notes. Um a quick thank you to all the patron subscribers. Uh, this is over over the Christmas period, so there's quite a few people. So I just want to say thank you to everyone. Uh, they are, of course, Graham Charman, Imogen Hunt, Kit Greenbrier, Andrew Goldsmith, Carol Smith, uh, Anne Turberfield, Michael Webb, Joe Melton, Claire Shaw, John Dusting, Christopher Keegan and Robin Foster. Oh, thank you all. That's my that's my lung exercise for the day. Uh, with with a thank you for some very kind people who uh, gave some donations over the Christmas period, which was Selena Dean, Carol Wood, and Laurie King. I thank you very much. Um, also, uh, Imogen's name was mentioned there. A thank you to Imogen at Moggy Metals for sending me two really lovely cast iron coffee coffee cup. Uh, coasters uh, which are absolutely lovely they're on my desk at the moment and they feature some very familiar murder mile phrases so uh, uh, go visit Moggy Metals I'm going to put a link in the show notes uh, and have a look at some of it uh, uh, Isabel's stuff um, just to say uh, this is extra mile as mentioned it's it's not essential what we do on this I make a cup of tea we do a bit of a quiz in the in a bit so to test your knowledge of what you've just heard we dive into some extra details that you won't hear about if you switch off now uh, but first a little promo hello and welcome to guilty greenie I feel like we should start off this show by saying it's nearly impossible to be 100% sustainable given the current world we live in. How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Not a great analogy for a vegetarian, but you know. We're talking uh, about sustainability, (laughs) maybe not the best analogy. Don't eat the elephant is the first rule of the guilty green. There's your first challenge of the week. Avoid (laughs) elephants. What they used to call frugal is now considered sustainable. It's such an aha moment. Frugal to sustainable. You can save money and help the planet. That's going to be our new tagline for sure. You can find Guilty Greenie on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast platform you prefer. And join us in tackling the Guilty Greenie challenges. Until then, stay curiously green. So, yep, check out that podcast. Um, right, I'm just going to go and make a cup of tea. This is the standard part of the show where I quickly make a cup of tea. Uh, I'm just going to open some windows and doors because I need some fresh air as well. Whoa, hang on. Oh, there. Core, core, lummy. Right, water on, tea on. Uh, back in a second, folks. Um, it's, it's very early in the morning. Ah. Uh, I always like to get up early. I always try and get up and record before the birds start waking up and making all their noises. And we've got a lot of birds around here. Obviously, coots. Uh, 
Obviously swans, we've got the geese woken up. Uh, seagulls were up being a pain in the ass. Uh, I can hear a woodpecker in the background. Uh, and we've got a new, uh, we've got the parakeets as well, the annoying little green parakeets that were released ages ago. Um, you'd hear them in the back, oops. Goose at the window, goose at the window asking for his breakfast. Hello mate. Uh, uh. They do their little uh, uh. There we go, they're, they're there now. And I'm just gonna, I'm just opening up the rest of the window so we can get some fresh air in. Core dear, that was a bit hot and meaty. Right, coming back, I'm gonna do the quiz and then we'll dive into some details. So, just sorting out my curtains. There we go, that's better. Goose is still at the window going, ha ha, where's my ha ha breakfast? Right, uh, so we do questions now and then the answers at the end. So, get ready, question one. What are Sarah's middle names? She has two. Question number two. When did the R when did the REC club first allow women? Baffling, baffling. Not baffling that they allow women, baffling that it took them so bloody long. Question number three. Which infamous serial killer was on the front page of the newspaper that Sarah was reading? You can pop in his name i didn't mention his name but i did pop in i mentioned his title uh question four how much money did sarah have left in her purse question five what was wrong with sarah's uniform a few days before question six what is the famous horse racing village that she came from question seven Name one of the films which she may have seen at the cinema. I mentioned three. You can pick one. Question eight. How many cigarettes did she smoke that night? According to how many butts we found in the ashtray. Question nine. What was the name of the bingo hall that she went to? And question ten. Name one of the three nearest royal parks to Pall Mall. I named three. You can name one. Or you can name all three if you want to, want to please yourself. That would be lovely. Um, so um, I've got to be really careful with this one. Uh, this is a three-parter. Um, I don't want to give away too much. And I haven't written... Oh, a stretch! Oh, and I haven't written uh, the other two parts yet. But I've, I've mapped them out. So I need to be really careful. So part one... I'm going to be really careful about what I say. Um, just to say, this is one of those cases that has been on my long list for ages. People have written a tiny amount about it. It hasn't appeared in books. It doesn't appear in documentaries, things like that. But sometimes you'll get like a, a paragraph in someone's book where they briefly mention it. But most of the details are wrong. Um, I I did uh, my research on it going through newspapers. And I thought to myself, oh, I'd I wish there was... Um, uh, some files in the archive for this and I'd, I'd already found one file and it was shut and it was closed for like 30 years as to be expected because this is only the 1970s but I found one file that was open which was great so I went in it doesn't have everything in it unfortunately uh, but it had it had most of the witness statements it had uh, crime scene photos 
it had all the uh, uh, back histories of, of those involved, not of Sarah, but of, of the culprit, whose name shall remain nameless until next week, a uh, map of the location of, of the room. Um, pretty much everything was there, so I was able to get a really good idea of kind of uh, all these details. Um, but, yeah, this is a really interesting case. I, I, do you know what? I've had a lot of fun writing this one, especially part one. Because normally with an episode, normally what I do is I give you an insight into their back history and then we kind of go, uh, everything was fine and then they met this person or they went to this room or they, they did this certain thing and then you know that's the start of the journey of which it's going to lead to their death. But Sarah doesn't have that. Sarah doesn't have that journey. She, she hasn't met anyone. She hasn't done anything. Everything's kind of, everything's going right. Everything's good. And so that's what this first episode is about is about laying down all the tracks so it may seem like lots of unimportant information but there's a lot of information that we need to get in there in order to kind of propel us forward for part two and especially part three so part two i'm gonna we're gonna focus on uh the the killer themselves part three we're going to go full into the investigation and we are going to go through every single detail so you can see exactly what happened. And it's a fascinating story. Uh, tea's almost up. Oh, I don't want it too hot. Uh, here we go. Pop that in there. I can't remember if I put sugar in. Did I put sugar in? Sugar, in, I, I am very much like uh, Sarah Gibson because I too, as we all know, I too have the cheap tea and coffee the cheap instant tea and coffee and uh powdered milk so we very much have a kinship there i don't see the point in buying expensive shit i never i wouldn't really appreciate it anyway right coming back with my tea uh wow, all hot hot and the powdered milk oh i haven't put in a bin bag that's not good i can hear a woodpecker in the background having a good old bang away and not bang away is it in a nice exciting bang away style thing he was talking about sex ah oh, right let's see if there's any extra details in uh, sarah's life that we can dive into so obviously her name was sarah gibson two middle names you're welcome i didn't spoil that one uh, she was 21 she was going to be 22 years old the next month which is why She'd booked herself, she was booking herself on a solo trip to Paris. That was her treat. It was a solo trip. She was going by herself. We know that. Uh, she was small. She, was, she had a pretty face. She had lovely big blue eyes, everyone said. Five foot two, about eight and a half stone. So a kind of a good height and weight to be a jockey, but she didn't want to be a jockey. Uh, this, as, as mentioned, this story is not about her rejecting her family and going, oh, balls to you. I don't want anything to do with you. She loved her family and she loved what they did. And do you know what? Horse racing was in her blood, but she wanted to do her own thing. We entirely understand it. It's something that we all do. Uh, a very private person. Not shy. She just she just liked her own company, which is, which is a kind of nice. Nice to hear that kind of thing. She's not. She's happy to talk to people. Always happy, always jovial, always popular. A little bit immature, but she never got into trouble. She kept out of danger and she didn't consort with any wrong types. She was loyal and loving to her family. Do you know, this is this is why I kind of like this story. She's, you know, she seems like a decent sort of person. Do you know, she's doing the best that she can. She's living her own life. She's she's doing well out of it. Do you know what? She, she went to college 
Uh, she got a job as a chambermaid. Then she got the job at the RAC club. And when she, at the RAC club, uh, her wage had gone up to, I think it was £45 a week. And when I looked, the national average for women in 1972 was about £20. So she was earning double what the national average was. So she was doing well. She was working her way up the, up the career path. And do you know what? Maybe one day she would have perhaps ran her own hotel if that's what she wanted to do. Uh, didn't talk about her love life. We don't know whether she had a boyfriend. Uh, people didn't know whether she had a steady boyfriend. They said that they thought they'd seen her with... Oh, my boat keeps banging against the path, the towpath today, because it's really windy. Very annoying. Uh, it's annoying when your whole house is shaking. Um... Uh, but uh, so we don't really know much about him, but we may learn some more in uh, one of the later episodes. Uh, everyone said she was happy go lucky, a popular member of staff. Um, that's the the only kind of uh, insight into how rebellious she was. That you know they they said uh, her, she had a black uniform, and one day she was wearing white stockings with it. Oh, and she said I have to do me. It's the only pair I've got until payday, and that's uh that's pretty much her um one of the 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 linen assistants rita perga who was also a a living member of staff at the club said um the other day she told me she'd uh saved enough money for a week's ho- oh, a week's holiday in paris uh other people have said it's actually a weekend's holiday and that she was really looking forward to it although rita had said on the friday um Sarah looked as if she might be uh, a little bit upset about something, but she didn't know what it was because Sarah didn't say much. But Rita is the only person who said that she looked a little bit upset. Everyone else said she seemed a normal self. Um, What else have we got? She seemed to get on well with Monica, the housekeeper. Monica was about double her age. She was about 45, I believe. Um, they got on well, they worked well together, they would work split shifts together, uh, they both kind of looked after the chambermaids, didn't seem to be any conflict between them, all Monica said was that she was a little bit childish at times, not really mature for her age, but she just wasn't any trouble to for anyone, she was popular and easygoing. Um, same with Frederick, the, the valet, um, Sarah d- didn't get on closely with anyone, she wasn't like best buddies with people but she liked everyone and everyone liked her um so do you know in a way if you don't have a best friend you don't have an enemy do you know if you just have people on a kind of the same level people neither love you nor hate you so do you know maybe that's a good way to live uh, um well she, got, she bought a television set for herself which was in her room a little 16 inch uh black and white uh baker light television set uh that was in her room uh she did that so she could watch tv in the evenings as a bit of entertainment she do you know she she didn't really like going out that much she wasn't afraid to go out she uh she just wasn't really her thing she sometimes went out for dances cinema theater as mentioned uh quite often she'd go to the bingo um i've put in that bit about the start about where she comes from in her uh, early life as a uh, from a horse race trainer background obviously that's because one we need to know where she comes from but two is there something in her past that leads to her death we don't know don't forget this is horse race training so there's a even though because um, it's a sport there's obviously a lot of gambling going on as in all sports there's always some dickhead who wants to uh, they, they can't work out how to how to gamble sensibly so they have to they have to cheat because they're twats 
there's always twats out there, isn't there? So, uh, Joe, was there something uh, in her background that leads to this? Uh, what else we got? She studied hotel management at a technical college. Uh, she'd been in the job at the IOC club for about 18 months, which was about the same amount of time as Monica. Uh, what else have we got? Just reliable, reliable, punctual. Uh, didn't have a, a criminal record, didn't do anything bad. Did, what didn't stay out late, didn't wasn't into drugs, wasn't into drinking, <sighs> didn't seem to have a secret life. But then again, she didn't seem to go out. So, you know, how can you have a secret life if you don't go out? Uh, she liked watching telly, she liked reading books, she uh, just kept to herself, really. Collected porcelain dolls, courts, crazy. Oh, well, that's obviously the reason why she uh. <sighs> why she was murdered um it's interesting this is the thing i really enjoy about looking at the crime scene photos it's a lot of people look at them and they, they go oh dead body oh but i'm not that bothered about the dead body the dead body does not tell you that much about uh the about what's going on it's kind of a moment in time that's captured but it's everything else in the room that's really fascinating. So that's what I did was I spent a long time going there. There's a lot of crime scene photos uh, and they will be on Patreon. Um, when you look at the crime scene photos, it's fascinating because all the things that are around her bed, you can kind of see like uh, her coffee cup is half drank. It's, it's a kind of a triangular uh, shaped cup and it's facing upwards. And you'd expect if there was going to be a struggle in a room that this would be one of the things that'd be knocked over, but it isn't. The jar of uh, Kenko, uh, gold blend, the the coffee that was open, the, the the lid was off the top. That should have been knocked over. It wasn't. The coffee mate, the the milk substitute that had the lid off. It was uh, open, but it hadn't been knocked over. Um, just all these different things that, when you look at the scene, you can understand why someone would go into that and think. It looks messy, but it doesn't look ransacked. It looks look. She's a, she's a young girl. How how many young girls do you know? I'm, this, this makes me sound like a pedo. <laughs> how many young girls do you know whose bedrooms are clean? Almost none. Their bedrooms are always messy. Um, clothes scattered along the floor, things like that. So you know, it's it's what it is. So when someone walks into the room, you have you have the areas where it's a little bit tidy, like her dolls were very tidy. And the little table by the window with the uh, little uh, flower in the in the jar, that was all fine. But then there were kind of things hanging out of her, uh, her uh, chest of drawers and cupboards and things like that, which you might expect, you know. If anyone, if anyone were to look inside my boat at the moment, they would go, who go, oh, has it been ransacked? It's like, no, he just can't be asked to clean up at the moment. Um, so... Uh, what else we got i think that's it as mentioned she doesn't really have a lot of stuff she has a little bit of money but not a lot she has uh the charm bracelet that she has which is more sentimental than anything else her father bought it for her and the little kind of heart-shaped charms that are on it uh that's uh they were each presents from her mum and her four siblings to remind them of them she had a gold-colored ronson gas lighter with tortoise shell casing that was her lighter for lighting her cigarettes a uh, silver watch she had uh gold stud earrings with very tiny diamonds in them you know uh, nice but not expensive uh and that's pretty much it when you look at the room there's not really a lot there there's not really a lot to nick 
and as mentioned you know she had claustrophobia uh, she didn't like sleeping in a room with uh, a small room with without the door open now her dad would deny this her dad said that she never had claustrophobia and that she always slept with her door shut but maybe in her home village when she was there in a place that she kind of knew surrounded by family maybe she could sleep with the door open and maybe she had a bigger bedroom whereas living in a city in a small tiny room in a massive kind of mansion block um maybe she needed the door open you know maybe maybe her kind of neuroses about and her claustrophobia maybe that got sparked by the city so maybe that's why he thinks it didn't happen but it did um the club itself as mentioned uh it's got uh, between 200 to 250 workers uh roughly around 15 15 i think it was 17 on the night were kind of residents at that point uh all were accounted for everyone who kind of um we will go into the full investigation later on but there were 80 bedrooms exclusively for uh members all of whom were male at that point uh all the people who were in those rooms were accounted for uh as were the uh there were 16,000 members of the club and the police actually interviewed every single one of them to find out where each of them were so whether they were in the club that night they double checked just to make sure uh what else have we got uh i think that's it as mentioned her, her her evening was pretty standard you know she uh she hung out she went for a walk she did a little bit of shopping she went to a, a couple of the royal parks for a nice walk because it was a good day um i think that's it i think that's it uh, she came back she had a meal she was seen at the club a couple of times she didn't seem to be harassed she bought a newspaper she bought some ciggies she went to the bingo that's pretty much it that's pretty much it that's uh, she went back to bed she was seen going off to bed um obviously no one saw her go up the stairs and into her room but she was seen, last, last seen by the barman and she was heading off to bed uh, it was kind of that time of evening going on her day off that's when she would go to bed um she's not the kind of person who would kind of break her routine really so um it's i think that's what i wanted to do with ep one is really show you every single detail of her life so you could go oh well maybe it was that maybe it was that maybe it was that because there's a lot of there's very few answers but there's a lot of questions that we need to ask in order to ask why someone would choose sarah and why if she was in a bedsit in the middle of like a shitty part of town with the window open on the ground floor we can understand perhaps why this would happen but she's inside an exclusive club on a floor which is exclusively for staff of which there's one entrance to that floor it's a maze of corridors to get to there um and someone has picked that room and you have to ask why 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 would you why would you why would you go through all of that journey just to get to her room so that's the question i wanted to ask with this um i think it's gonna that's all i'm gonna say on that and i think we need to uh you will find out more next week this is don't forget this is a three-parter it's it's a really fascinating one uh and uh it's never really been told before there's been bits and pieces but not a lot so which is why i was so glad that there was a a, a police file that uh and a, a which it was a uh, yeah it was a crim file so i was really happy to be able to dive into that and get all the details that i really didn't know before 
Okay, let's do the answers to... I forgot to say, I do have a cake ready to eat. It's a nice double chocolate muffin. But I, I, I was whizzing through this, so... Uh, I haven't had my cake yet, but I will have a cake in a bit. Mmm, cake. Right, answers to the quiz questions. Get yourselves ready. Ready? Question number one. What are Sarah's middle names? Her full name is Sarah Mary Gindall Gibson. Gindall uh, means practical, which sums her up. Uh, question two. What did the RAC club... Oh dear. Actually, given their attitude, that's probably the the correct way to do the question. Question number two. When did the RAC club first allow women? It was in 1998. Uh, and ever since then, they've had a bit of a hoo-ha going on there. Because apparently before that, all the men, all the businessmen, loved bathing in the nude and looking at each other's penises. Because apparently if you're uh, a businessman, that's what you do. You go and do a business deal and then you look at your mate's penis. But apparently now, because there's women there, oh, you're not allowed to do any nude bathing. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Where will they go and look at each other's penises next time? Um, go to a, go to a royal park or a toilet, guys. Um, <laughs> question number three: uh, Which famous serial killer was on the front page of the newspaper that Sarah was reading? This was nineteen seventy-two, so it was the teacup poisoner Graham Young. Uh, question number four: How much money did Sarah have left in her purse? Sixty p. Question number five. What was wrong with Sarah's uniform a few days before? I gave this away in the extra mile, so you should have got this one. Um, she was wearing white stockings with a black uh, uniform. Question number six. What is the famous horse racing village that she came from? It was Lambourne in, Buck in Berkshire. Question number seven. Name one of the three films she may have seen at the cinema. They were Dirty Harry, Clockwork Orange, or Alfred Hitchcock's Frenzy. All three very good films. Um, question number eight. How many cigarettes did she smoke that night? It was six. There were three butts in two different ashtrays. Hmm. Question nine. Uh, what was the name of the bingo hall that she went to? It was called Big Fun Bingo. And that was at the Rialto on uh, Coventry Street, which was where Ken Snakehips Johnson died as well. Uh, and question 10. Uh, name one of the three nearest royal parks to par to Mall. They were uh, Green Park, Hyde Park and St. James's. Mm. So I hope you enjoyed that. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Lots of information in there. Lots of things I've uh, put in there as little red herrings, which are kind of look important, but they might not be important. But there's a lot of details in there that I've snuck in, uh, which hopefully in the later episodes you go, oh, yeah, oh, oh I'd forgotten about that. So, yeah. Oh, stretch. Right, now time to edit this. Oh, So that's me done. Have yourself a good week, everyone. Stay safe and be good. And uh, thank you for listening to Murder Mall. Um, have a good week. Be good. Bye. 
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.